Last Lord's Day, we finished the last major discourse or body of teaching uh, recorded that Jesus gave uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and I thought we would take a break for the next uh, few weeks, and for the next three weeks, I'd like to talk to you about sanctification, sanctification. That is a word that just refers to a person's dedication to God and their separation from sin and anything anti-God. This is something that a believer both enjoys and desires. You know what I mean? Sanctification, growth, in love for God, devotion to God, and separation from sin is a something, it is something that every believer enjoys and also something that every believer desires to experience more and more and more. That, I think, is the theme for the next few weeks. This is something that we feel like we could never have enough of and sometimes... I believe for many Christians, we look at our progress in dedication to God and separation from sin, and it is sometimes discouraging how far we still have to go and how inconsistent we have been. Of all people who ought to be loved with all of our hearts, And yet we find our hearts growing cold to God. Growing cold to Christ. And ourselves becoming enamored of getting our own way. of Just giving in to the old nature, the old flesh, the old way of living. And at times it can get discouraging. At times you wake up in the morning... And you say, I'm ready to pray, and the only thing I can pray is, God, forgive me. What a mess of sin I am. And I know, having said that, I'm, I'm preaching to a particular kind of person this morning. I'm preaching to the kind of person that has already awakened to the beauty of God in Christ and the horrible nature of sin. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've never... You've never been awakened like that. You've never been born again. You've never been regenerated. You've never had the lights come on to the wonder that is God and had a sense of repulsion toward your sin. And all I can do today is set before you the glories of Jesus and pray, as I do for myself and for you, that we would come to experience this kind of, uh, of love for God to a greater degree. Um, I pray for you that you would come to know the gospel and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to particularly talk to believers this morning, to Christians, and to talk to you about growing in holiness. And there are three chapters in the book of Romans I'd like to take over the next three weeks. And obviously this won't be in any kind of great detail. But in just a sort of a survey fashion, 
Romans 6, 7, and 8, because I think they really speak uh, foundationally to what it is to become more uh, dedicated to God and separated from sin. So I would like to read the entirety of Romans 6 and into the beginning of Romans 7. I know that's a lot to read. Uh, It'll be on the screen as well, so if you can listen, if you can read, if you can follow, try to keep your mind engaged. This is the very word of God for us. Romans 6, what shall we say then? And remember what this follows. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We just read in chapter 5. Now, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin, as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who once were, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, that is, more and more. For, verse 20, 
when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, that is, free from righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to you, to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married uh, woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I want to talk to you about sanctification, and I think a way that you could describe sanctification in the terminology of this passage, that is chapter 6 and into chapter 7, is the reign of grace. That might be a good title for the sermon, the reign of grace, because that kind of reign or realm terminology is all through this passage. In fact, from chapter 6 to 8, I counted some 36 times where you find terminology like this, slave, obedient, bound, belong, reign, dominion, held captive, sold, subjected, in bondage, or alternatively, set free, released, and delivered 36 times within this section. This is talking about a reign, or in fact, more specifically, it's talking about and contrasting two different realms. On the one hand, there is, well, let me, let me, let me give you the introduction to this first. The introduction is found in the chapter we read in our um, opening worship time back in chapter 5. Look again at verse 17. You'll see this idea of a reign or a realm here. He says in verse 17, chapter 5, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through Adam, death reigned over all humans. Nobody conquers death. Everybody gets conquered by it. Why? Because death came in through the door that sin opened by Adam's transgression. Much more, though, he says, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, he said, death reigned over humanity, but now he says, when you receive grace, you will reign. You will reign in life 
through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass, that is the sin of Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That is, for all of those who are united under Christ's headship, just as much as death came upon all of those who are naturally descended from Adam, which in fact is every man on the planet. Now verse 19, for as by the one, excuse me, uh, yeah, verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That is because of Christ's obedience on the cross. Now verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. We'll bring that, talk about that a little bit more next week. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace, what? Say it with me. Grace, let's say it again. We've got, to, we've got to bring this out here today. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Amen. So that just as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, which leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This, I say, is the reign of grace. Christians are under the reign of grace. They're in the realm of grace. And chapters 6 to 8 will explain this reign of grace and the way that it works to increase a Christian's sanctification. That is, his dedication to God and his hatred of everything that is ungodly. There are two realms being pictured throughout these chapters. There is the realm of Adam, the first Adam, and there is the realm of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the realm of nature, and there's the realm of the spirit. There's the natural realm, the spiritual realm. There's the realm of law, which might need some explaining, and the realm of grace. There is the realm of sin and the realm of righteousness. There's the realm of death and the realm of life. In one realm, sin reigns in death. In the other realm, grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life. These two realms exist and Christians live um, between these these realms um, and have been translated from one to the other by the grace of God. Um, In this passage, in chapters 6 and 7, there are two beautiful illustrations that picture these two realms or these two kingdoms, if you will, these two spheres of authority or or, um, jurisdictions might be a good way to say it. Two illustrations to help us understand the two jurisdictions under which all humans find themselves, one or the other. In chapter 6, there is the illustration of two different masters And in chapter 7, there is the illustration of two different marriages. So masters and marriages. In chapter 6, you see the master-slave relationship illustrating a realm, a rule. A master rules over his household. He rules over his slaves. So just look at the wording in chapter 6, just by way of illustration here. Chapter 6, verse 6, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7. He has been set free from sin. Verse 9, death no longer has dominion over us. Chapter 6, verse 16, present yourself as a slave. 
You can be a, present yourself as a slave to sin, or you can present yourself as a slave to God. Those are the two realms. Slavery pictures those two masters. Or verse 20, you were slaves to sin. Verse 22, you were set free from sin and have become slaves to God. You can see very clearly there are two masters presiding over two realms. There is the realm of sin and death and the law, and there's a realm of grace, the rule of grace. That's the illustration in chapter 6. When you get to chapter 7, the illustration is tweaked a little bit, but it's along the same line. Two jurisdictions, two realms or two reigns, but in this case, the illustration is marriage. You say, well, how in the world is marriage sort of like slavery? Okay, now, don't let your mind run too far on that one. All right, that's not what I meant. What I meant to say was, you know, this is not a completely different illustration. It's picking up the same theme, and the idea is that you are bound in marriage, right? You're bound to that person for life. So that's the idea that's being presented here. In chapter 7, verse 1, the law is binding on a person. Chapter 7, verse 2, a married woman is bound by law to her husband. You said the same type of illustration here, but he's now applying it in the domestic sphere in a way that really becomes powerful for uh, laying the foundation for our sanctification. Uh, we used to talk about the man before politically correct days as the master of the house, right? You remember those days? The master of the house. I've heard the other day they're now changing the name of the master bedroom. It's not the master bedroom anymore because that doesn't sound right. Um, but but this is the, the image that this, that this woman is bound to a husband, um, and that's a, that's a kind of, of a realm or... Uh, a jurisdiction in which she operates, right? Just like the slave is bound to his master in chapter 6. Now the question is, okay, we're, if we are bound up, if we're, if we're enchained, if we're enslaved in the realm of sin and death because of the sin of Adam that we have all participated in and we've all descended from him and by nature we just belong in that realm, how does anyone ever get out of that realm and into the realm of grace. How do we escape the reign of sin and the curse of the law? Because it is a kind of slavery. Under the law, we have a legal obligation to God. Under the law, humanity is in legal obligation to God. That is, the relationship is contractual such that if you obey, you will live and enjoy the, God's blessings. And if you disobey, you will die under the covenant curse, the curse of the law. The wages of sin is death. And the problem, of course, is that we are all inherently lawbreakers. And he's going to pick up the, this problem of the law or, or the perceived problem of the law. Later on, we'll come to that. But, but the, in, in essence, we are all lawbreakers. And under law, we are contractually obligated, as it were, to use this terminology, we are contractually obligated to suffer eternal death. I mean, the law is, is not personal in that sense. The law is black and white. If you obey, you live. If you disobey, you die. 
So then I ask, how are we to escape this fate or this, um, this result that we have rightly and justly brought upon ourselves? How does any of us get out from under the punishment that is due to law-breaking people? And every one of you has broken God's law. Every one of us has. What can possibly get us out from under that realm? I mean, we are, are we able to rise up against our uh, master, the good law of God, or rise up against death and overcome it in our strength? How can any of us get out of that realm, those, break those shackles which bind us in irons? Well, let me use these two illustrations here to answer that question. How? Can a slave escape his master? Hey, well, he could run away. <laughs> but the law you cannot outrun, for God is everywhere. Or what about the other illustration? How can a man or woman, how can a woman get out of her marriage? Say, well, she could divorce, but that is not an option where there is no breach of contract, which there certainly is not on the part of the law. It is always rigidly the same, faithful to the end. The law is. No, there is no getting out of it that way. There is only one thing that can legitimately dissolve a marriage, right? And you know the answer. The answer is what? The answer is death. What? Till death do us part, we used to say. I don't even know if they say that at weddings anymore. And so it's a charade for a lot of people. But till death do us part, that's what can part a marriage. And Paul uses that illustration, right, in chapter 7, verse 1. Look at chapter 7, 1. Do you not know, brothers? I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Apply it to marriage. A married woman's bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband's dead, she's not still bound to him. She's free from that marriage, right? If she, if she, if she is with somebody else while, she's, while he's still alive, she's an adulteress, verse 3 says. But if he's dead and she marries another person, we don't call her an adulteress, right? Because death has severed that contractual obligation or that jurisdiction, that bond of holy matrimony. Likewise, he says, verse 4, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You have died to the law through the body of Christ, through the death of Christ. Here is the beginning of our understanding of how we live a sanctified life, living in the realization that we have died with Christ or in Christ, died to the law and died to sin. Death not only releases you from the law of marriage, it releases you from all law. We can understand that. You don't imagine a guy who is sitting on a park bench in the middle of the park and he has a massive heart attack and he dies there on the park bench. He just kind of slumps over. And he sits there and he, he sits there all afternoon and into the evening and the night watchman comes along in the middle of the night in the park and sees this fellow slumped over on the, on the park bench and he says, all right, mister, there's no loitering in this park. I'm going to tell you, I'm only going to tell you one more time, and then I'm hauling you before the magistrate. 
No response, eh? All right, you're coming with me. And he picks up the corpse and he drags him into the court and he plops him, props him up in the, in the seat and he says, Your Honor, this man is a vagrant. Ludicrous, crazy, ridiculous. If he's dead, the, the law against loitering doesn't apply to him. We all understand things like that. Death releases you from the jurisdiction of the law. And it works that way in marriage. In marriage, the law cannot charge you with unfaithfulness or impurity. Death has broken the marriage bond. This woman is not an adulteress. Her her marriage has been severed. Her former marriage was severed by death. Death is the answer. That's what he's getting at. And that that works um, in terms of this this marriage illustration. If, If you're a Christian... If you're a Christian, then in terms, in terms of your relationship with God, you are dead to the law. In terms of your standing before God, your relationship with God, you are dead to the law. That is the law and its, uh, its punishments have no more jurisdiction over you because you're dead. That's what he's getting at. Your relationship with God, here's here's one of the most encouraging things in the Christian's fight for sanctification. Your relationship with God doesn't go up and down depending on your law-keeping performance. Your inherent relationship with God is not dependent on your performance. Moreover, when death breaks the bonds of marriage, you are free, not only from that previous marriage, but you are now free to do what? If your husband's died, you can be remarried, right? Biblically. I'm not, I'm not getting into all of the nuanced, you know, possible reasons for, you know, divorces here. Let's, you know, that's another discussion for another time, if your mind is distracted by that. But in terms of, of, of this woman, she is released from marriage only by death, but when death happens, she can be remarried. And that, Paul brings up, that's exactly the, the purpose uh, of this death to the old life. Verse 4, notice chapter 7, verse 4, if you would. Take a look at that text. He says, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. That is, to him who has been raised from the dead. You've died to your marriage to the law so you can be married to Jesus Christ. Your relationship with God now doesn't depend on your personal obedience to the law. It depends on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ. Just as when you get married and you come down the aisle and you stand before that pastor and that part of your marriage vows, at some point you probably say something like, with all my worldly goods I thee endow. All that was mine is now also what? Yours. And all that was yours is now also mine. This is the picture I can't think of any better picture of our 
being right with God in union with Christ than the picture of marriage. It's almost like marriages were designed to picture that. Which, in fact, they were. And so every marriage becomes a beautiful picture. Martin Luther picked up this idea. I'm going to just read you a few things that he said. I think we have it for the screen as well. He says, Christ and the soul, the soul of the sinner, become one flesh, as it were. And if they are one flesh, and there is between them a true marriage, indeed, the most perfect of all marriages, since human marriages are but poor examples of this one true marriage, that is, between Christ and us, between Christ and His people. And then it follows, he says, that everything that they have, they hold in common, the good as well as the evil. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in what Christ has has as though it were his own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. Let us compare these and we shall see the inestimable benefits, Luther says. Christ is full of grace and life and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, that is to bind them together, and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are the bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, How shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? Here, this rich and divine bridegroom Christ marries this poor wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness, Her sins cannot now destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him as the bride in the Song of Solomon says, my beloved is mine and I am his. That is the picture that is the the overriding image of our union with Christ and all of the righteousness that is ours by virtue of that new union, into which we can only enter because we have died with Christ to the old self, to sin, to to the natural world, to, to the law of God even. This is our hope, that all that is Christ is ours. Christ is our righteousness. Now, the other illustration shows the same thing. How can one person get out from under the jurisdiction, the rule, the reign of his former master and become um, a person under a new master? How can he get out from under sin? How can he get out from under the curse of the law and death? In chapter 6, he says this in the same way that he said it in chapter 7. Look at verse 3. Chapter 6 and verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised we too might walk in newness of life. Now drop down to verse 6. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. When you're dead, your old master or boss can't boss you around anymore. Right? If you quit your job, or if you get, yeah, somebody said amen to that one. You get out of your job somehow. Well, well let's, let's just, well, let's, let, we better use the illustration that's here. Your, 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 your uncle passes away. And the next day, your boss calls up and says, hey, your uncle didn't come into work today. I don't know why he'd call you, but I'm just using it as an illustration. He said, well, your uncle didn't come into work today. He said, no, he's dead. I'm sorry, he still needs to come into work. No, he has no control over you. You're not in his jurisdiction. You're dead. You're dead to that employer. You're dead to that boss. You don't owe him anything anymore. The, the obligations have been broken. Death has a way of, of breaking those things. We understand that. That's the only way. Death is the only way that you get out of the slavery to sin. So how or when do we die to sin, to the law? When has the jurisdiction of the law over us been dissolved? When we were united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, united with Him in His death. That's what he's saying. We're united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection now to a new life and a new foundation for relationship with God, with Jesus Christ Himself as our sanctification. So we're going to talk about sanctification and we're going to talk about some very practical, hopefully, means of of growth in our love for God, our devotion to God, and our hatred of sin and our separation from sin. But it has to start right where the Scripture starts with this foundational principle that that sanctification is found in Jesus Christ Himself. If you have Christ, you have sanctification. At a foundational, fundamental level, if you have Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, then you are sanctified. You are holy. I'll never forget the day this truth really dawned on me, and I've read part of this many, many times to you. But let me just read it again. I'll read it a little bit longer too. This comes from the biography, the autobiography of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. His autobiography called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Bunyan struggled with his, with the sense of his relationship with God and whether he was right with God or under the condemnation of God, whether he was um, uh, acceptable to God or whether he would be punished by God. And he says that one day as I was passing along in the field and that too with some dashes on my conscience fearing lest yet all was not right with God. Have you ever been there? I'm asking you, have you ever been there where you have had these dashes on your conscience and almost wondering whether you were right with God? He says, suddenly in that moment, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, 
was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he wants or lacks my righteousness. For that was, that is my righteousness, was just before him. It was right there before him. I saw, also saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. He goes on, he says, Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. So when I came home, I looked in the Bible to see if I could find that sentence, Thy righteousness is in heaven but could not find such a saying. Wherefore, my heart began to sink again. Only that was brought to my remembrance, he, quote, of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, God has made Christ for us our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. By this word... He says, I saw that the other sentence was true. And this word comes from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. He says, for by this scripture, I saw the man Christ Jesus is our righteousness and sanctification before God. Here, therefore, I lived for some time very sweetly at peace with God through Christ. I was... Excuse me, it was glorious to me to see his exaltation and the worth and prevalence or prevalency of all his benefits and that because of this, now I could look from myself to him and should reckon that all those graces of God that now were green in me, that is, they were new in me or small in me, they were yet uh, but like those cracked groats and fourpence halfpennies that rich men carry in their purses when their gold is in their trunks at home. He says, oh, I saw that my gold was in my trunk at home in Christ. My Lord and Savior, now Christ was all, all my wisdom and all my righteousness, all my sanctification and all my redemption. Further, the Lord did also lead me into the mystery of union with the Son of God, that I was joined to Him, that I was flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone. And now was that a sweet word to me in Ephesians 5.30, which says, we are members of His body. Bunyan says, by this also was my faith in him as my righteousness the more confirmed to me. For if he and I were one, then his righteousness was mine, his merits mine, his victory also mine. Now could I see myself in heaven and earth at once, in heaven by my Christ, by my head, by my righteousness and life, though on earth by my body or person. Oh, what a joy it is to see your sanctification in Christ. Done. Finished. Complete. 
absolutely certain. This is the beginning of the experience of holiness in the life of a man or a woman. It begins with looking to Christ alone. That becomes the foundation for everything else. All of the striving, all of the self-discipline, all of that rests on Jesus Christ Himself who is our sanctification. My sanctification is not lacking in that sense, in the most fundamental of senses. Because my sanctification is Christ who is the same yesterday and today and forever. In that sense, my sanctification does not progress. It does not regress. But it is always perfect and complete before God the Father. I, I, I feel the necessity of, of jumping ahead slightly and reminding us or warning us that we have to be careful to say that this doesn't mean that the law of God, the moral principles of God's commandments are totally irrelevant for believers. I I remember having a phone conversation a while back with a man who was uh, living in clear and unmistakable sin. And every time I brought up any scriptural commandment regarding what he was doing or the way he was living, his answer was always the same. Well, we're not under law. We're under grace. As if now it doesn't matter how a person lives. This is not what I'm saying. Paul says as much in this chapter, chapter 6, verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Answer, by no means. Do you not know that if, if, listen to this, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. By which he doesn't mean that giving in to sin makes you into a slave of sin, but rather that continually giving yourself over to sin shows that you are still, in fact, a slave to sin. That is, that you were never united with Christ in his death to sin and the realm of of ungodliness. But here's the truth for people who have died with Christ and are no longer under the law's jurisdiction. Verse 17, still again, chapter 6, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have now become, listen to this, you have now become free of any obligation, free of any uh, moral right and wrong. You can do whatever you want. Did I quote that correctly? I didn't quote that correctly. No. You who once were slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That is the moral law of God. You're obedient to it. He says, he says no, far from being uh, disobedient as a Christian, being anti-law, you do the law of God from your heart. This is not uh, antinomianism, which is a, an a, a negative view of the law. But this is a transformation that comes about 
in a person who is settled on Jesus Christ foundationally as his absolute sanctification before God. How does freedom from the law and death to the law produce anything but lawless people, some may ask? Why don't justified people sin more instead of less, some may ask? The answer is in both of these illustrations. First of all, the illustration of the masters. Look at verse chapter 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Right? You were free from righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But, but now, verse 22 of chapter 6, verse, but now you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God and the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. By the way, that helps us to understand that Christians are saved by God's grace in, in regeneration and justification and, and through sanctification to glorification. Nobody goes from justification to glorification who doesn't all, also travel down the path of sanctification. That is a progress, progressing growth in the actual experience of devotion to God and separation from sin, right? So, but the idea is that when he comes into this new relationship with a new master, that relationship is a fruitful one. It produces effects in the person's life. In the old days, you remember, they used to take uh, little pieces of fruit and hang them in the Christmas tree, maybe tie them to the Christmas tree, and you come out and you get this wonderful, delicious fruit on Christmas morning. But in the end, both the fruit and the tree will die because there's no life going on, right? And that's the way it is, in, essence, in, a, in a sense, with our relationship with God under the law. Because of our sinfulness, it's a relationship that brings only death. But when we are grafted into the tree that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the living tree, then he produces fruit in us, that holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, but produced in us by virtue of our union with Christ. You see the same thing in the illustration of the marriage. Look at chapter 7 now. Chapter 7. Again, I'm, I'm arguing for the fact that when you are given credit for what Jesus did, it's not something that has no effect in you. It does have an effect. Verse 4, chapter 7, Likewise, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, that is Jesus, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear what? Same thing in chapter 7 you had in chapter 6. This new relationship, this new jurisdiction, to use legal terminology, this new um, marriage in this chapter is one that brings forth fruit. It's the illustration of a woman who wants to have a child and she and her husband are barren and they're unable to bring forth the fruit of her womb. But death, and death alone, severs that old marriage and now she is married to another husband, and that, that marriage brings forth fruit. 
This is what the Lord said through Isaiah the prophet, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. This is what happens when you come into the new covenant in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, not in the old legal sense of of what you owe God in your obedience, but in terms of your relationship with Christ, by which you get credit for all of his righteousness. He is your sanctification, but also through you and in you and in union with him, you produce actual fruit in your life. Your life begins to bear good fruit. Legalism, legalism is a strategy that some people um, by which some people attempt to get a form, an outward form of holiness. But legalism focuses on the law. It focuses on what is external to us and outward conformity to that. Biblical sanctification is the fruit that comes from union with Christ and it is internal to us coming about from the implanted spirit within us and learning what it is to walk in the Spirit and let the Spirit get control of us and produce the fruit of Christ within us. That's where all of this life is going for you if you're a Christian. That's where God wants you to go. This is the whole plan and the whole scheme that God has for you to become more like Christ, to produce the offspring of Christ, as it were, the fruit of His indwelling life within you. In other words, this translation from the old realm to the new is not only a legal transformation, but an experiential one. That is, in both illustrations, it is a legal change of status which leads to a transformation in experience. And the only thing that can bring about that change of status is death. That is union with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Being united with Christ like that means being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which means obedience to God's heart from the will. Now, the big point of all that I've been trying to say to you this morning is that the first step in sanctification, the most foundational thing about your sanctification is how you think about your relationship with God. How you consider your relationship with God to be grounded. People answer that generally one of two ways. Their answer to that question of how is your relationship with God, on what foundation is it grounded? The answer is usually either, well, I try, I do, I don't, usually starts with the letter I, or on the other hand it is, Christ is my righteousness, my sanctification, and my redemption. That's where it starts. Now it produces fruit in my experience, but it starts there. That's what is foundational. So the writer of of this book, Paul says in chapter 6, he says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. You must bank on it as a fact. Put your faith in this 
Lord Jesus, consider yourselves dead to sin in Christ and alive to God. Don't think of your relationship with God in terms primarily, um, in terms of law keeping, which goes up and down depending on your performance, but rather instead think about your relationship with God in terms of being one flesh with the obedient Christ. And that is our ultimate hope. Because all of our evangelical, that is, Christian obedience from the heart to the gospel, to, or rather to the law of God, all of that obedience that we give as a Christian, all of it is imperfect, isn't it? Every one of us can look at our evangelical obedience and say, oh, man, it should be more. Oh, Lord, forgive me. How short I fall all the time of what I should be, what I actually want to be most deeply. These ups and downs are not our ultimate hope. Your ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ himself. And you will have more true victory over sin by looking to Jesus and experiencing the unfathomable love of God for you in Christ and being amazed at the tenacious grace of God in saving and keeping and restoring and sanctifying you than you will at berating yourself over and over for your failures to keep the law. Don't get me wrong. Believers are always repenting of their sin person who is not repenting of his failures is no Christian. But Christians don't stop there. They go on to glory in the perfection of their Savior. They push through the repentance. They turn from looking downward and inward and introspectively, and they lift their eyes again to gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope for a relationship with God, for the kind of of, uh, satisfaction before God uh, in the last day. That's their hope. They don't obey God's law in order to get right with God or to stay right with God, but because they are right with God in Christ. You are right with God if you are in Christ by faith right with God in a way that will never substantially change. To you who are discouraged from all of the looking inward, I say, don't stop looking inward, but don't forget to look upward to him whose righteousness is enough because Christ himself is, he is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. All praise to the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Christ and we praise you that we are righteous only and solely in union with him because if that were not true, O Lord, we would be lost and without hope. 
we would be discouraged beyond reconciliation. But Lord, we bless you for the grace that has united us to Jesus in faith. And I pray again that we may go on in that union with him by your sustaining grace. We pray it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.